Welcome to the Whistleblower Newsroom. I'm Christina Borgeson. In the wake of the CDC approving vaccines for 12 to 15 year olds, two big questions need immediate answers. How safe are the vaccines for these 13 million or so kids? And do they really need them given statistics showing they have virtually zero chances of dying from COVID or transmitting the disease? If that's true, why the push to vaccinate them? If anyone has answers to these questions, it's my guest today. Dr. Merrill Nass is an internal medicine physician, a biological biowarfare epidemiologist, and the developer of a model for analyzing epidemics to assess whether they are natural or man-made. She is also a scientific advisory board member of Robert Kennedy's Children's Health Defense, a nonprofit that monitors vaccine safety for children. Dr. Nass and Mr. Kennedy just filed a citizen petition requesting that the FDA revoke emergency use authorization for COVID vaccines and stop approving and licensing them. The reasons for their request are outlined in the petition and frankly, a good number of those reasons could be fodder for a criminal complaint against both the CDC and FDA. So today we're gonna delve into the details of their petition. Welcome Dr. Nass. Thanks for having me, Christina. You know, so, I've been a big fan for 20 years. <laughs> thank you so much for saying that. I appreciate it. Um, I, the first thing I want to do is go into the seven reasons, you know, the seven actions that you're requesting that the FDA and CDC take. Could you talk about that first so we can lay out the groundwork? Sure. I, I can run in another room and, and get them, or I can tell you, basically, we have said that for, for many reasons, for several dozen reasons, um, the FDA did not have the authority to issue the EUAs for either adults or children aged 12 to 15. Um, and so we think they should be immediately revoked and that uh, the FDA should refrain from issuing licenses for any of these three vaccines or any new ones coming up um, until we have adequate safety and efficacy evidence and, and we can be assured that they work well and are safe. Um, we've also pointed out that the FDA has allowed the CDC and many other entities, including states, to incorrectly identify the vaccine as being safe and effective. And um, in the legal world of FDA, safe and effective only applies to licensed drugs. It cannot be used for an unlicensed drug. That, that is legally important terminology. And it is FDA's job to clamp down on entities that illegally market products. And unfortunately, the entities in this case are other government agencies. Um, so we've asked them to clamp down as they are supposed to. Um, we realize we're asking the perpetrators to clamp down, right? Yes, we, we are because we have no other option. Okay. That's profound, you know? Yes. How can, how can that be? There's no other option. Well, I mean, we could ask for a temporary restraining order, but several other legal groups have done that and have been shut down. So it doesn't look like that avenue is going to work. Our, our attorneys don't feel like that will be a, a, an avenue that will lead to benefit. This method which, in which you um, give FDA a list of, of the things you want it to do differently and the reasons why must, because this is a legal document, 
must be responded to by FDA. So they have to take every one of our points and, and respond. And if we're not satisfied with the response, we can then litigate against them over the response, over the whole issue. So um, it seemed that this was uh, an avenue that hasn't been tried yet and uh, could potentially take a while, but could, could lead to success. And I guess the reason I say that is we also worked, I'm not the only one, there are about uh, half a dozen people who worked on this. And two were my old colleagues. We had all worked together to fight the anthrax vaccine mandate and the anthrax vaccine program. And we actually got a judge to lift, to remove the license, revoke the license on anthrax vaccine because it didn't have, uh, it hadn't met the standards just as these don't, haven't. And then the um, military slapped an emergency use authorization on the vaccine. So it had been a licensed product. It became unlicensed. And they said, okay, we've just created a law a few months ago to create the EUA. We're gonna put it on anthrax vaccine. We're still gonna make everybody take it. And we went back to court. This is in 2005. And the judge said, no, you can't do that. The law up, says no. That, did, did you just say that EUA, emergency use authorization was created in response to your anthrax vaccine um, getting, to the anthrax vaccine being pulled off by a judge? Some people think that it was, uh, that the whole EUA process was um, brought into law in response to our anthrax litigation. I can't say whether that is the case or whether it was independent, but it was used. The first and only time um, a mandate has been attempted on an EUA unlicensed product was with anthrax vaccine. And we took it back to court. We went to the same judge, Judge Emmett Sullivan, First District Court, DC. And he said, no, you, you know, the law says you may not mandate an EUA product. Well, this is very, this is very disturbing because basically it says that the, the government created another law to get around a previous law. And now it's, it's, it has invoked- To get the judge's ruling, yes. Right. And now it has invoked that, that sort of weasel factor uh, EUA built, they, it's built the weasel factor and now it's in full force here in the COVID situation. Yes, uh, so I'm glad you mentioned that because the EUA is absolutely a weasel factor and the, the language of the PREP Act that, that brings the EUA into existence only requires the potential for an emergency. So you can issue an EUA in response to an emergency or the potential for an emergency. And EUAs were issued for anthrax vaccine for 10 years on the basis of there might be a potential for an emergency. So unless we get rid of laws like this EUA law, you know, we can, people can just declare the potential for an emergency and um, get rid of normal, the normal legal regime. Because of the EUA, how many people do you think were um, died, or I'll say outright were killed either, or or adversely had had uh, dangerous adverse effects. 
from an anthrax vaccine or from yeah, COVID vaccine? From anthrax. We haven't gotten to COVID yet. We're still on anthrax. Okay. Um, quite a background right there. I can't, I can't answer. So what happened was the judge said after that, it couldn't be mandated and uh, everybody who took it got, got to refuse. Okay. Until, until the following year when FDA, FDA reapproved the license and then they were able to mandate it. The same so vaccine. Same that well, the license looks the same. The, the, the label looks basically the same. The FDA has not acknowledged that there were changes made to the ingredient list or the mechanism of manufacture, but I can guarantee you they were because um, the effects on soldiers are quite different and they're much less severe now than they were before, okay? There was a, a GAO document that cited unnamed uh, officials of the CDC and uh, I think the military that said one to 2% of soldiers who got the anthrax vaccine could be permanently disabled or die. So that was in the early days, I think it was higher than one to 2% that were disabled, but you know maybe 10% with the very earliest, which was multiply expired, dirty, very bad vaccine. So the first 2 million doses that were used were, were the worst. And they were used on about 500 to, to 800,000 soldiers. Subsequently, it's still not a good vaccine, but it's cleaner than it was before it's not expired. And people are still reporting injuries. There, there's no good science to determine you know, what, how many people are injured or if it's due to the vaccine currently. Well, it just, it seems to me like uh, you can't, you can't get good information because uh, nobody wants to get you that good information. That's right. The, the information exists. The, the military was required by Congress to collect extensive information on health in one database called the Defense Medical Surveillance System, which by the way, it's one of the databases CDC said it was going to use to assess the COVID vaccine safety. Um, this data information was supposed to be made available to the public quarterly. Um, the, this database began around 1998. Um, it was Congress made them do it in response to Gulf War syndrome and nobody being able to figure out what had caused Gulf War syndrome and who, who had it and who didn't and what their exposures were. So they created the database and um, have kept it basically hidden. Okay, so now let's let's come up to COVID, and uh, let's let's talk about what what I have synthesized down into. Hold on, I just want synthesized down into the the ten ways that the FDA and CDC have protected vaccine manufacturers and the vaccine campaign at the continuing cost of human lives. Okay, I mean this is what I see in your petition, you know, this is the great rubric that I see. And the right. first one is the withholding, extensive withholding, and this comes to your, uh, the database that you're talking about, extensive safety information withheld from the public despite having at least 10 data sources and expert consultants to analyze the data. So there was a doctor who came out and was talking about that could you, could you talk about that situation? 
the, the 10 databases. Where's the information from these 10 databases? What are they? And what right. was she saying? Well, I don't know what doctor you're Dr. referring Messonnier, to. Dr. Messonnier, I think her name is Dr. Oh, Dr. Okay, yes. So um, Dr. Messonnier, uh, Nancy Messonnier, who happens to be the sister of Rod Rosenstein, the former acting attorney general, um, was one of the highest officials at the CDC. And she was in charge of the National Center for Immunization and um, Infectious Disease and, and Respiratory Disease, excuse me. And so she spoke to the advisory committee that, you know, according to federal law, agencies have to have outside advisory committees. And so um, I, I knew enough that there might be something interesting in these advisory committee meetings that I sat through the meetings for each of the three vaccines, that the COVID vaccines. And so Nancy Masanya did a, about a 20 minute presentation and, and she was trying to explain to these independent outside, some civilians, some work for the government, experts um, who needed to sort of approve what the FDA was doing, approve the EUA, that she was going to, that the CDC under her guidance was going to use these 10 data sources to massively um, examine the safety of the COVID vaccines. And this was an assurance, okay, we're giving them an EUA after only a mean of two months of data on the subjects in the trial, but we've got all these other systems working. So by the time we go for licensure, you know, by the time a month or two goes by, we're gonna have all this data and we don't have to feel that that we're you know we're just in a in a data desert. Um, and she listed them. So she had slides in which she listed the databases, and she had slides in which she had you know graphics showing them. And so I snapped um, you know screenshots, and and I knew about most of these databases, but I did not know at that before then that they planned to access all of them for for COVID. I knew that they usually access about four, but this was 10 or 11. So I thought, well, this is very interesting. You know, I made, I made great note of it. And, um, and then I waited and waited and waited. And in the very beginning in December and January, um, we got some information on the vSafe database, which was um, a new system they, that was set up by CDC uh, with, with the Oracle company where they asked people who got the vaccine to um, download an app and that they would get reminders and they would um, input into their cell phones information about whether they were having side effects. Okay, so that was vSafe. And CDC even came up with a new category of adverse reactions. So normally there were adverse reactions, which anything you wanted to report, and there were serious adverse events, so adverse events and serious adverse events. An event means it may or may not, we're not saying it's an effect, it may or may not have anything to do, but chronologically it happened after a vaccination um, and we're, we're not assigning causality. So CDC created this thing called, um, was something like, I forget the, the acronym, acronym, but um, medically important events. This, this designation had never been used before. I looked it up online. So I've never heard this in 20 years of looking at vaccine science, never heard this term. And so um, what it meant was if you're 
adverse event was bad enough to see a doctor or to go seek medical attention somewhere that, that it fell into that category. And that's what CDC was interested in. They did, they, they were trying to brush off all these other side effects. And I realized later that's because they knew the, the acute side effects to these COVID vaccines are much more severe than for any other normally used vaccines in the United States. They're trying to find a way to brush this under the rug, you know, and I'm sure some PR firm came up with the idea to say, well, you know, if you're having a reaction, that means it's working. Well, no, it doesn't mean it's working. It means you're, you might be having a reaction to the peg. It doesn't mean you're making antibodies to the spike protein, you know? What's so, the peg? What's the peg? Peg is, is one of the um, numerous chemicals that is in the vaccine. And it, it may be called part of the lipid uh, nanoparticle. Um, but it's, it's one of at least six different uh, fatty um, substances that are part of the vaccine. And it's, it's, a, it's a part that um, somewhere between 40 and 70% of the population already have antibodies to it. And so um, it's thought that it was predicted that people would have anaphylactic reactions in response to PEG, polyethylene glycol, for example. And um, now anaphylactic so, shock, anaphylactic reactions are pretty, can be pretty serious. They, they're, it's respiratory distress. Cardiorespiratory and maybe skin, you know, urticaria, rash. So, so wait, let, let, so what they're doing then is they're, they've come up with this term that allows them to ignore certain data and focus on other data data to make the adverse events minimize fewer in well to minimize the number, right? Reported, yes. Right. So so basically that's fraudulent. Yes. That basically is upholding this this fraud that this vaccine is safe and effective, right? Right. Right. Because they're covering them. Absolutely. So that term I remember now was called health impact events. So when they presented the data in December and January, suddenly they were talking about health impact events. And, and it was a lot, like um, it was more than 2% of the people who got the vaccine were seeking medical attention afterwards, um, which is, again, never heard of it before. Well, we never heard about the VSAFE database after that. So um, theirs is a database that everybody has talked about because that has always been accessible to the public. That's the vaccine and adverse reaction database. Database that you we, have to call in. You have yes. to first know it exists. Then you have to call in. So it's a low percentage of people who would actually call into this thing, right? Maybe exactly. Yeah. Exactly, and and you have to type your, you know, your you have to type everything in. And generally it's thought that for, you know, less severe reactions, perhaps about 1% of people who have a reaction will actually get it inputted into the system. Maybe a higher percentage for a serious reaction. It's of interest that the use, so you're not supposed to use the VAERS database to figure out the rate of any adverse reaction or adverse um, event because it's a passive database and it's voluntary and you never know the reporting rate. 
So, um, and that, it says that right on the CDC, there's website. So they you say that themselves. They say that you can't use this to determine rates of adverse effects or events. And yet that's exactly what they did. So instead of giving us information from these other databases that they have that provide much more valid information, um, for instance, they have access to the medical record of 12 million Americans. CDC pays HMOs for access to those records. So, but the, but we don't know about what they oh, say. Meryl, what do you think they're covering up? Well, I think a higher percentage than is absolutely a higher percentage than they could possibly justify the EUA for. Yes. Yes. Thank you. Okay. And the reason I say that is because um, anaphylaxis is an easy one. Okay. It's severe, potentially life-threatening, and it happens right after you get a vaccine, right? It, on average, it happens, they said, 17 minutes later. Right. So hard, it's hard to attribute it to anything else. Um, so the CDC used the VAERS database and calculated reaction rates of anaphylaxis for the COVID vaccines and claimed for, for the first two and claimed that they were um, on the order of two to 11 episodes per million. And that for prior vaccines, the average was 1.3 episode per million. And so this was still in the range and perfectly acceptable. The problem for CDC was that Mass General then decided to check on their own employees who were vaccinated and they had between 50 and 60,000 vaccinated employees. And they asked them, checked who had anaphylaxis. And they found that the rate was about a hundred times higher than <gasps> CDC had claimed using VAERS, which is what you'd expect because you can't use VAERS, right? So a hundred times higher. Yeah, it was oh about- Oh my God. Okay, so, okay. We, okay. We could go on and on about these databases, but obviously what they're doing is they're, first of all, they're picking data from, uh, that is, you know, minimizes everything and that even they themselves say are not good bases from which are not acceptable bases for counting. Okay, so that's all fraud. That's all Correct. fraud. Okay, so now they're saying the other thing that they do is they dispute serious adverse effects, right? And death mm -hmm. linked to COVID vaccines. Uh, this is right. one of the so things that you said. Haven't what CDC said is we haven't um, absolutely found that any side effects are are caused by the vaccine. So that that's again weasel wording. We haven't absolutely proven causality for any of. Well, okay, but did you rule out causality? Well, no. I think it's worse than that. You know, because what I go to is, well, it's if you're not if you're purposely not looking in the right places for causality, you won't find it. So it's a look here, not there fraud. Yes. I, I see this in government cover-ups all the time, Mara, Meryl. It happens all the time. I've seen it, you know, and this is, and the, the worst part about this is that it's happening while people are still dying out there. And while more people are going to be affected by this vaccine, these vaccines. Right. So again, let, let me just tell you a new one. Um, oh. CDC said 
oh, there's been a few, their language, a few cases of myocarditis in young people after the vaccine, and we're examining them, but we think the rate is no different than the underlying rate, okay? Yesterday it came out, they had 18 hospitalized young people in Connecticut. Connecticut has 1% of the US population. 18 hospitalized myocarditis cases after a COVID vaccine for Connecticut is equivalent to about 1800 for the whole United States. And these are people about 15 wow. to 30. So a few, you know, CDC's a few is, is not a few. So again, again, they're perpetrating uh, this this fraud. It's 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 a deadly fraud, really. Yes, on, you know, with yes. the numbers. Okay, so so again, you said they improperly calculate rates of adverse events, and then they base their evaluations. This is number four. They base their evaluations of safety of vaccines on studies that are obviously improperly done protecting the vaccine manufacturers and vaccine campaign at the cost of human lives. In other words, didn't they even pay for a boat? You know, aren't they using, aren't they saying, oh, this study, that say, and these studies are just, uh, this is what I saw in your petition, that they're basing their evaluations on studies that aren't properly done. You were talking about- in, So in the, the original um, studies that were done by Pfizer you know, and by Moderna, the Moderna study was done with the help of the US government. So they're also protecting other federal agencies. They're protecting the warp speed program, right? It's but aren't, weren't they, weren't they doing tests with, and they, they, they were doing some animal on some animals? Yes, so, okay, so remember when, when the Moderna trials started in March in humans, it was said that there had been no animal studies. My reading of FDA law is that FDA is not allowed to give approval for a human study without animal data, okay? So I think that that was fraud also. What um, seems to have happened is that simultaneously when they started the human studies, they also did a few animal studies, but what they also did to pad the appearance that they were doing animal studies was to take some off the shelf animal studies that never used any of these RNA vaccines, but used other messenger RNA products or other lipid nanoparticles or other similar things and threw them into the package of, of data that they presented to FDA, to the EMA and to other regulatory agencies to make it look as if they had all this animal data that actually had been done probably years before on other products. So that's compound fraud. Yes. It's just, now number five I see is FDA knowingly blocks vaccine injured claims by failing to publish a list of adverse reactions to the vaccine. So they're protecting the vaccine manufacturers in the campaign at the cost. Oh, no, they have to protect the vaccine manufacturers because the federal government has already protected them. The federal government has said the only way you could sue a vaccine manufacturer is if you can prove willful misconduct and the secretary of HHS allows you to sue. Okay, so there is the, the strongest possible liability shield over the manufacturers, which enables them to make a bad product because they don't have to stand by it. Okay, so the 
And the only mechanism by which someone who's injured by one of the COVID vaccines can actually get any reimbursement is to apply to the Department of Health and Human Services, which of course is the agency that runs the CDC and the FDA and the NIH, which are responsible for this fraud. So you apply to them, it's called the Countermeasures Injury Compensation Program, that Congress has to fund it. I'm not sure it's been funded for COVID vaccines yet. Um, and the maximum amount you can get is about $370,000 for a death or a permanent disability. However, the amount will can only cover medical expenses and lost wages. There's no money for anything else. And there's a one-year statute of limitations and only 5.8% of the people who have applied have walked away with a dime. Yeah, but... But in this case, it's even worse because doesn't the FDA have to right. provide a list of adverse reactions to the vaccine before you, you know, you have to show. you Right. Okay. So exactly. So these people have a one-year statute of limitations and they are required to prove that their injury was due to the vaccine. Well, how are they going to prove it when we don't know what the injuries are? And CDC is saying, we don't know what, we don't know what's caused by the vaccine. So they have a year to file. And if they if they can't get that information, so far they can't get it, it doesn't exist. Well, you know? it doesn't exist because the CDC doesn't right. want it to exist. In the public, right, in the public domain. Okay, now let's get into a whole other area of fraud, which is the FDA uh, warning against early treatment drugs, okay? Um, and that have been successful and approved in other countries. Yeah. Okay. This is a complex fraud and it's an international fraud because all the countries of the West apparently colluded or collaborated to perpetrate the same fraud at the same time. And by those countries, I mean, Canada, the U S the UK, most of Western Europe, Australia, New Zealand. Um, and this fraud uh, said that chloroquine and hydroxychloroquine and, and other chloroquine drugs were dangerous and were too dangerous to use in, in COVID because the risk exceeded the benefit, that they killed people. Well, these drugs are over the counter in most of the world. They had been over the counter in France until January of 2020, which is quite interesting. Somebody had initiated taking them off over-the-counter status around November of 2019, as if maybe someone had some knowledge that COVID was going to happen. This was in France only. Um, in the United States, they were not over-the-counter, but these were licensed drugs from you know many decades. And so several different things happened to make it appear that they were dangerous. You know, first the claim was made that they were dangerous. Second, a strange company called Surgisphere run by one guy, um, a vascular, a young vascular surgeon, 40 years old, published studies from supposedly the biggest database in the world of hospital patients, um, which he claimed to have over 600 hospitals and over uh, 90,000 patients who had come down with COVID of which, of whom, 15,000 had gotten a chloroquine drug. And he said that those patients who got the chloroquine drug were about 30% more likely to die 
than the others. Okay, and he published this in The Lancet under a short notice, you know, very, very quick review. Um, and no one has ever explained it, it, how this paper got published. You know, when I, I read it, the night it came out because it got international attention. Now, I heard it is one of the most respected medical journals in the world. Yeah, until now. Okay, all but right. But this was a big fraud. Now, when you looked at that paper, I, I looked at it and I said, wow, this database can't possibly exist. You can't, you can't have data in real time from over 600 hospitals using all different kinds of software in all many different languages, how could you get it that fast? You know, he claimed to have data like immediately because he had this system. Well, you don't just get data from hospitals. I mean, this is, you know, very private information. It's a bureaucratic process at the very least. Right. And it's expensive. Right. You have to pay for it. So it would have cost him, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars probably to obtain such data. He had, he had five employees and um, it was a fraud. The database did not exist. The paper got retracted from the Lancet 13 days later, but the damage was done because throughout the whole world, there had been, you know, the, the mainstream media megaphone saying the chloroquine drugs kill. Now, another thing that happened was interesting. The two largest, the, the WHO said, look, we don't want all these little clinical trials happening and we don't really know what it's all gonna mean in the end. Let's all come together and do big clinical trials that everyone can agree on. And then we'll have, you know, they will be highly powered and we'll know what the best drugs are for COVID as quickly as possible. So many countries, you know, dozens and dozens of countries agreed with this and, they got money from the large philanthropy organizations that you can imagine. And um, so they went ahead and uh, had a trial with hydroxychloroquine and used this excessive dose. Uh, about oh, three Okay, so they do a trial using more, way more hydroxychloroquine than anybody would ever take for anything. Exactly, wow. exactly. Wow, okay. All right. Knowing, uh, knowingly, they did this. They couldn't they, be so stupid okay. as to not know what the average uh, dosage let, is. Let me just say that the, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation has a group that models drugs in the body. And they use, this group includes people who are experts in malaria. These are malaria drugs, the chloroquine, yes. okay? They have def and they, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation had five people on the uh, 25 or 26 person committee that decided to use the chloroquine drugs. And they um, advised on dosage. Okay, that's as far as I can go with that. Oh my God. So basically, oh my God. So these people were, you know, basically fraudulently gave this it i mean anybody look i was i was reared in haiti chloroquine you know everybody took it <laughs> there because of the mosquitoes etc people with malaria so i was i was shocked when i was seeing all these press reports you know about how dangerous it is and now you're you're saying for and and the by the way the fda 
accepts. Now, again, how can they accept a study without looking at it and determining, oh, well, I don't know, this dosage seems awfully right. high. Right. They know it's high. But, but this study, okay, so it, it wasn't just one study. There were four. And there were several others that were going to happen, but got stopped because of the scandals that, that erupted. So that was just the WHO study. And there were a thousand people who got too much hydroxychloroquine in that study. And more of them died than were in the control arm. That's murder. Yes. That's murder. I don't know if it's called murder. Um, what, it's, called some, the, it's called something else. Well, but if yeah. you knowingly, if you knowingly administer a dose that you that you know is dangerously high, and somebody dies, what do you call that? Well, let me tell you. One of the two, uh, actually, okay. Let me not. There were okay. So there were several other trials that did the same thing. The first one was in Brazil. Brazil trial had a very high arm and a normal dose arm of chloroquine, and they very quickly they had 16 of the 41 people in the high dose trial die. So average age 50. It's interesting that they always do these things in other countries, third world but, nations. But it didn't really, in this case, it didn't. So that was the first. And by the middle of April, everybody knew about it. It was published in the JAMA. Okay. But the Journal other of American medical association. Yes. Yes. The other trials, continued. They ignored it. And so the British had a similar trial. They used the same doses as the WHO. Um, the top doctors in England encouraged every doctor in the UK, that includes Northern Ireland, Wales, and Scotland, as well as England, to uh, enroll as many patients as possible in this trial. And they trialed several different drugs, but one was hydroxychloroquine, and they had 1,600 people in the overdose arm. And of those, 400, over 400 died. Oh, oh, that's, I'm telling you, Meryl, that's murder. They must have known that these people, people yeah. were- Manslaughter, manslaughter. Manslaughter. So, so the, um, one of the co-principal investigators was queried by Francois, a, um, a newspaper, an online newspaper in France. And they asked him about the doses and he was so stupid, he didn't actually know that they were poisonous doses. And he said, oh no, you can, he said it, they taped him saying, he said, no, 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 these, you could give higher doses for, you know, amoebiasis. Um, these are the normal doses. And of course they looked it up and it wasn't the normal dose. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. It, okay, um, that's, that's so disturbing. I, uh, I, I'm having a hard time uh, digesting it, but okay. Let's move on to ivermectin. And what's going on with ivermectin? Ivermectin in general did not come to attention or, okay. And I should say also that the FDA screwed around with its language, it's communicating about the chloroquine drugs. So um, it encouraged them only for hospitalized patients um, and when it should have known that it only works early in the disease course. By the time you get in the hospital two weeks later, you're not growing any more virus. And it they wouldn't work. had to have known that, Merrill, because they'd been reporting 
in France and elsewhere that hydroxychloroquine with zinc was an early, early COVID stage treatment. They had to have known. Right. And so with all the 60 million donated pills that the Trump administration had, they were only allowed to be used in hospitals. Oh. Okay, so again, let's, go on, let's go on to ivermectin. Wait a it's second. A, I just, have, so they purposely said you can only use it once you've gotten yes. to hospitals, which means they, and they knew, they knew that they would not be effective. So that had two re purposes. One, it would show that hydroxychloroquine doesn't work. It didn't work. Right. And two, you know. It stop people using it and, and make the pandemic persist. Yes, keep the pandemic going. Okay. All right, let's go on to ivermectin. There's something else actually. Oh, okay. Then FDA also somehow colluded with the states, the pharmacy associations the, or the pharmacy regulators and the doctor regulators. So about 30 states issued their own because FDA only gets the by law only gets to make determinations about how drugs and, and vaccines should be used, but it doesn't regulate physician practice. So even though FDA was telling us we shouldn't use it, a doctor like me could use it because it's a licensed drug and I can use it off label. 20% of prescriptions are written off label, no consequences. Um, so I kept doing that, but they got, so my governor issued a uh, a, you know, a ruling based on the emergency regulations that it could not be used for prevention. Now that's very interesting because if you use it for prevention, it's working like a vaccine. Yes, and if, if you have anything that can prevent the virus from, right. you know, killing you. You cannot issue an emergency use authorization. Right. So that's why this whole early treatment thing, they're still suppressing it. They're still, right. and, and now people are being barraged. It's on, right. it's on early, TV. So early treatment, but also preventive treatment, yes. both suppressed. And so uh, using different levels of the states, they were suppressed because FDA couldn't do it alone. So, some, so in New York state, they said, you, you can't dispense it for outpatients. Um, See, and, and some in Michigan, the pharmacists were threatened and they were told to report on doctors who wrote prescriptions for it. Mm -hmm. um, that, that also happened in the UK that you were supposed to, you know, they, they threatened doctors' licenses if they were prescribing the chloroquine drugs for COVID. So anyway, um, ivermectin, there had been a study, a little study published in Australia in early April of 2020 and ivermectin was over the counter for animals. Ivermectin is the heartworm drug, the drug you give your dog. And, and there's also ivermectin for sheep and for horses and you can buy it as a liquid and you can buy it as a, uh, a tube of like a cream. So people were going to farm stores over the counter and buying ivermectin if they, were, if they had become aware of this Australian data that ivermectin was effective against COVID. And so last April, now we're talking, going back 13 months, FDA issued a warning, humans should not buy animal drugs. I, there's no, we have no evidence that ivermectin works. Do not do this, okay? They didn't try to stop its license. It was licensed. It's been licensed in the US for about 40 years. So 
They didn't do anything else. And most people never heard about it. But gradually, as the year wore on, more and more people started trying it and finding that worked really well, probably even better than hydroxychloroquine to treat COVID and that it could be used as a preventive very effectively every week or every two weeks dosing because both these drugs last in your body a very long time for months. You take a dose, it's in there for months. So by December, Ron Johnson in November and December of last year had hearings and brought in doctors who were using hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin and they raved about how wonderful this was against this dread infection. And the, um, the Democrats had one uh, witness for the first hearing, Ashish Jha, who spoke out about how terrible it was to use these unapproved drugs. And when he was asked how many patients he treated, he had to, with COVID, he had to admit zero. Um, the second hearing, the Democrats refused to attend and refused to call witnesses. So, and yeah. It was crazy because, so the whole country found out about it. And so then people really started using ivermectin, you know, and I started offering it to all my patients. Um, so then something new happened. Apparently it had, what I'm told by Europeans, but I don't have the paperwork, is that it was, it was basically banned for use in those countries. Yes, yes, I've spoken. I've spoken to physicians uh, from Europe, and that's exactly what they said. Um, so here it wasn't banned, but it seemed like the the powers that be in the world decided we better do something about this ivermectin business. So on Christmas Eve, they banned it in South Africa, and South Africa was just starting to have a lot of cases, even though most of Africa had very little uh, ostensible COVID. South Africa was having more. And so it got banned uh, and was banned through importation because it wasn't made there. So they weren't allowed to import it anymore. And wow, uh, it looked, then I started thinking, wow, they're gonna start banning it everywhere. So I started writing about it and urging other people to, to write about it and make us think about it so they couldn't pull the wool over our eyes. And, um, People in South Africa initiated some legal actions against this, and eventually they won um, in April, I think. So now it's it's available in South Africa, and um, so although there have, FDA has again issued a warning in March that uh, there's they haven't studied ivermectin. There's you know we have no evidence that it works. Blah blah. Don't use it, but they haven't tried it because it's a licensed Wait. drug. It's How still can they like, say they have no evidence when they're surrounded by the evidence from frontline doctors here and around the world? How can they say, even you know, on the face of it, they can't say that, even right. if they haven't done any of their own site? Because that was that was number nine. It's dragging its feet on looking into. They say, oh, we have some. We've done some some early. Uh, Right. And that was in March 20, but they're not, they're obviously dragging their feet on it because they don't want it. They, and, and given their past history of accepting or being part of bogus studies, but how can you present a bunch of bogus studies when the cat is already out of the bag worldwide? You can't. So, so let me tell you how they in. do that. Okay. The biggest studies, the biggest clinical trials were that British trial and the WHO trial uh, for hydroxychloroquine. 
that's how so what they do is they keep doing meta-analyses and you weight the trials by how many patients were in them. So there were enormous numbers, you know, 1,600 in one and over a thousand in the other who got hydroxychloroquine. So then you throw in a bunch of small studies and whatever the conclusion was of those two large studies, which was that hydroxychloroquine is killing people. Well, they, they don't say that because they don't want to be charged with manslaughter, but they say, well, it doesn't work. So they keep bringing those trials back, performing more and more meta-analyses. By the way, some of these are paid for by the same Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation that um, advised the WHO on yeah, the dose. The meta-analyses so are fraudulent. Those, exactly. Those trials should have been thrown out. Those were non-therapeutic doses they were trialing. Those were poisonous doses. It's like, we're giving people poison and we're trying to see who lives and who dies. And then you keep using that data to justify doing something wrong. So that, that was one with what was done with hydroxychloroquine and that's what the FDA continues to rely on. Um, with ivermectin, they're keeping quiet because they know they can be dinged. Every, you know, people like me know what they did with hydroxychloroquine and chloroquine. They would prefer not to have to go that far again. Um, so they're just sort of keeping quiet, but they've told the pharmacists to screen the prescriptions. So the pharmacists were given a list of three or four drugs that they have to screen. And so now I've had four patients where the pharmacy refused to dispense ivermectin to them. And when you ask them why, they say, well, we were warned, you know, to screen the, the prescriptions and not to give it out for COVID. Again, this is literally allowing people, you know, die. exposing people to potential death and ex exposing them to death. You know, I mean, it, this is, oh my God, this is, this is very serious. And I, I can't believe that, that uh, so far, the only thing you can do is, is submit a petition that outlines their it's criminal. I mean, it's outright criminal behavior. And it's, but the problem is, is it's like a global, is, do you see this as a global conspiracy, Mer Meryl? I mean, a Western conspiracy. Yeah. 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 Cause the third world nations, they're using hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin and, you know, in, 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 in you know, COVID is not a problem in Vietnam anymore. You know, they, I think they had a spike when they got the vaccine. Right, right. There's been a, there, the data aren't super. There's good data from, from one study in Israel because they had 500,000, 300,000 people, but um, where they show that your risk of COVID goes way up to about two and a half times baseline in the two weeks after you get your shot. It spikes up and then comes down. Anyway, let's not go into that. That'll be a whole nother long discussion. Okay. okay. So the other thing that I thought was interesting was that they have hidden all the, even though they've hidden all this data and they're keeping you know it away from it, it clearly they've already surpassed their own standards by a, more than a country mile for shutting down a drug. Yes. Okay, could you talk about that? Well, 
I don't anticipate that FDA is going to agree, agree with the petition and revoke the EUAs or, or refrain from issuing licenses for these drugs, okay? So they have, it, they have not met the standards. The standard requires that there be no um, licensed alternative. The licensed alternative would have been hydroxychloroquine or ivermectin used prophylactically. It would have done the same thing, probably be even more efficacious than the vaccines and, and more safe. These are, these are both remarkably safe drugs when used at the right dose. Um, they're both uh, approved for pregnant women. I mean, they're approved in pregnant, how many drugs are okay in pregnancy? You switch patients over to hydroxychloroquine when they become pregnant because it's safe in pregnancy. Wow. So, um, and, and ivermectin is just given out without a prescription in Africa. You know, it's just handed out. And Merck, in fact, um, promised to give free ivermectin to all these countries where there was river blindness until they had eradicated river blindness. Yet now Merck, is, Merck has published on their website, don't use ivermectin for COVID. You know, it's not safe. We, we don't recommend it. We have no data that it's safe or effective. Yeah. Well, and apparently there are a lot of people who have put together studies based on their own patient populations. Right. Uh, so there's 200 studies now that are either in preprint or published on, hydrox on hydroxychloroquine, and there's over 50 on ivermectin. So there's more data than there, are, than there is for the COVID vaccines or for almost any other drug around. But the other thing is, is that the other thing I was trying to get at is that, you know, the FDA, once they're going through the approval process with a drug, uh, if it if certain number of deaths or adverse reactions are achieved, boom, they shut it down. They shut down the whole, they, you know, push that drug. If it's been approved, they push it off the market. They or don't have standards. So what they do, for instance, if a cancer drug kills you, well, they said the cancer would have killed you otherwise. So you're allowed a lot of deaths from cancer drugs, okay? So they balance the severity. Yes, you didn't know, people don't know that. They balance the, the benefit overall and the risk of the disease and blood. And so there's no one equation that you can say, oh, you went against your equation. They, they have, this is what they told us, what the court told us with anthrax vaccine. We said, well, look, the FDA is not following its own regulations. It's not following the science this license should be lifted. And they said, no, FDA has deference. FDA can interpret the science and the regulations any way it wants. Well, what's interesting here is that these numbers are higher, I understand, than virtually any drug that's been taken off the market in the last 15 years. Is that correct? Yes. So the, the reports to VAERS are absolutely extraordinary. They're about 100 times higher than for any other vaccine. What is going to happen in a courtroom um, will be that um, Dr. Massanier set up programs so that um, the, the VSD database, so the, 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 sorry, not the VSD, the vSafe information where you have a cell phone app and you type in your symptoms, that goes to Oracle. And then Oracle screens those and, and is supposed to send the serious reports to VAERS. So what they did was create a different mechanism for VAERS reporting than has ever existed before. And they will say 
Therefore, you cannot compare this year's VARES reports to the prior VARES reports because Oracle was never inputting information into VARES before. Oh my God. So it's like at every turn, they're trying to contain the, the damning information. That is, yes. that's, that's amazing. Like they, it's, it's like this, this. Exactly. Why, why would you take these safe data and push it into theirs? They're two different databases. You know, it didn't make sense, but well, uh, here, what here's did. what's interesting too, is even from the very beginning, uh, the definition of pandemic has been changed, right? Right. The definition of who died of COVID. A case, a case definition has been changed. Right, exactly. The deaths. So if, if you have COVID written anywhere on your death certificate, CDC codes it as a death caused by COVID. And now the National Center for Health Statistics with their COVID deaths, they say, they now say involving COVID. They don't say due to COVID. And CDC hand codes every COVID death. So it doesn't matter how the doctor coded it, how the state coded it, CDC gets to recode it if it wants to. So this is really crazy because now you have this massive fraud that is resulting in untold human death. Uh, on the part of these government agencies whose tax dollars are funded by us, the pool of victims, okay? Um, and to whom we have to petition to yes. get some kind of relief. Yes. I mean, this is the theater of the absurd, only it's a very deadly theater of the absurd. Meryl, yeah. I mean, you've seen this before. You've seen this before with the anthrax well, and so on. Right. I've seen it before, but the um, the attention to detail and the number of ways the system has been cooked for COVID is extraordinary. I mean, it it must have cost you know uh, a king's ransom to get everybody in line and to have all the right people, you know, to have the right presidents and the right prime ministers. Who would go along with it? I mean, this was this was really something to put into place, and the United States may be able to beat it back. I mean, you know, they've brought the vaccine passport into Europe, but there are a number of states here that have said no. You know, they they didn't at least at this point they did not gain control of every governor, and the governors have a lot of power under emergency legislation, so. So it's so it it may not come to pass, but I will bet you know hundreds of millions billions were probably spent to put this operation, you know, in into place. You know, we've just run out of time, but I want to tell you this has been an amazing hour with you, and um, I look forward to updating this conversation because I think what you're doing is very important and you really have a grasp of the, of the big picture and all the nitty gritty 